You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist humanist podcast. My name is Brandon Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. In this episode of Radio Free Humanity, we speak to sociologist David Norman Smith about Trump voters, what makes them tick. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. Our interview with David Norman Smith was fairly long, so we're going to break this into two episodes and air the second half of the interview in our subsequent release of uh, Radio Free Humanity. In just a moment, we'll get to the first half of that interview. But first, as we do in every episode, Andrew and I are going to take a few minutes to talk about some current events. Okay, so on this current event segment, we're going to talk about vaccines, about vaccine rollout, and some of the inequalities that have sprung up so far in vaccine rollout and how some of these things are playing out and will play out. Right now, we have a situation where there is some vaccine it's being produced, but not in the quantity that's needed. And even beyond that, there just aren't the facilities to vaccinate everybody at once. So we we knew all along that there was were going to be priorities. Medical personnel and, and people like that were going to get it first. People over 75 were then going to get it, then people with certain conditions. So we knew that there were going to be priorities in terms of who's going to get the vaccine. But then there seemed to be these hidden priorities whereby various kinds of social inequality are being brought to bear, you know, having an effect on the vaccine rollout. Why is that happening, Brendan? There were some good articles in the news this week about, you know, racial inequalities being manifested in vaccine rollout, about cities that have, you know, large African-American populations but a larger proportion of white residents versus black residents were getting vaccines. And when I first started to hear those headlines a few weeks ago, my assumption was that this was like a reflection of the medical profession being disproportionately white. And I figured that, that maybe that those racial inequalities were going di- to disappear after hospitals were done inoculating their staffs. But it seems like that those inequalities are still showing up. And there were some good articles talking about even in places where counties and cities had very deliberately tried to put vaccination clinics in poor neighborhoods and neighborhoods predominantly of people of color, that these clinics were all of a sudden full of white people from outside of the neighborhood or even from the suburbs coming in. The theory seemed to be that This was just uh, a reflection of the fact that those wealthier people had better access to computers and to functional phones and knew how to navigate the online sign-up systems better, or maybe in some places had access to, like, reliable transportation to get themselves to the clinics. So it wasn't like people were just, like, putting clinics in, like, Beverly Hills. It's that even with the good intention to to try to get ahead of these racial disparities— and put these clinics in underserved neighborhoods, still there is a disproportionately large amount of white and wealthy Americans getting vaccines and much lower percentage proportionally of black and and people of color uh, and low-income people getting these vaccines. And, uh, you know, it should I guess it shouldn't be surprising to me. I mean, we live in a capitalist society. It's not like all of a sudden this one thing is going to be somehow administered rationally according to need you know, uh, in the middle of this pandemic. I mean, every, everything is like uh, the pandemic's been disproportionately hard on poor communities and communities of color. And it looks looking like the, the rollout of the vaccine is going to be equally disproportionate in, in that regard. And I don't know. It's hard to see how, how our society is going to solve these problems. It's still like a sort of state by state and city by city and institution by institution situation. Now, on top of that, we have also seen people like taking advantage of the, the rollout I mean, and or making, I think, probably unethical decisions about who should get priority vaccines. You had like hospitals who were inoculating people who weren't frontline workers, like 
board members or wealthy donors or workers who were working from home and didn't need to come in before, like, say, like medical residents or janitorial staff for being vaccinated. And we've, you know, heard about people with wealth and privilege just sort of being able to buy their way into uh, to the front of the line. So that's, you know, that's also a, a reality. Yeah, I mean, everything works like this. Uh, they managed to buy their way in the front of the line for college admissions, right? We've had some cases like that. They get preferential access to politicians. So, yeah, none of this is surprising. I mean, are there efforts being made to adjust for this, like to distribute, to, to, to ration vac- vaccination doses by, let's say, zip code or something like that? This article in the Times talked about that as something that a people that some states are looking at doing, and there's of course resistance and some you know other forces in the state of like threatened lawsuits, claiming it's like discriminatory. So it seems like a real line for conflict and and going forward. And as we get to like successive phases of the uh, vaccinations, where more and more people are eligible but there's still limited supply. There's probably going to be increasing political conflict about uh, over, over these issues. I, I, I can't quite play it forward in my head and like game out all the scenarios, but I expect it's going to be dramatic. You know, there'll, be, there'll, be a, there'll be a lot of drama around it, and, and I, I worry about that. Right. Just to be clear for our listeners, there are issues in terms of what groups in the population are going to get vaccinated, and there is a demand side issue. Uh, wherein in some communities, including some in in the black community, there are people who are very reticent about getting vaccinated. But you're talking about a purely supply side problem of unequal distribution. How, How does that affect the goals of the vaccination program? They're trying to uh, increase the, the number of vaccinations that are administered uh, every day in order to like try to reach something like herd immunity, some coverage of the the, the whole it, enough of the population before these new strains of the vaccine just multiply and take over. So it, it's important to do things fairly quickly. Does the unequal access uh, have an effect on the, the the goals of these programs in the short term or in the long term? Yeah, I mean. I mean, exactly along the lines of what you're saying, we're in a race against time against these variants that are spreading that are, for one, there, it looks like this UK variant is going to lead to probably a spike in cases in the US. And it also looks like some of the variants are less receptive to the vaccines themselves. So the faster we can get to some degree of herd immunity, the the better chance we are of like staving off the, the, the effects of these variants. But this unequal rollout is really uh, hurting this prospect. I mean, when people who people of means are getting the vaccines first, these are like the, the last people who really need to be getting the vaccines, right? They probably are people that work from home, who like are not living in crowded spaces with other people, don't have to like take public transportation. Probably don't don't have in general other health problems that are going to compromise them and lead to greater chance of fatality from COVID. Yeah, don't live yeah. with lots of other people. And the people that need the vaccines are the people who are like living in apartment buildings with lots of other people and taking public transportation and working, having to leave their house to go to work every day. And those are the ones who we need to be vaccinated first to try to stave off these variants. That's that's extremely important. I wasn't thinking about that, but that's crucial here in terms of trying to counter the proliferation, the spread of the disease. It's not just a question of, you know, inoculating one person to make them safe. It's a question of potentially the vaccine helps to stop them from transmitting it to other people. And so you want to get it to the people who are most likely to be transmitting it to other people, those who are working not from home, those who are working in close quarters with other people, uh, and those who are living in close quarters with lots of other people. That's what that's what you're saying. And so it's it's not just, okay, well, some people got it first. Well, the other people will wait and it'll never be okay. No, this is this is hurting the program and it's making it more difficult, not just at the moment, but as we go forward. 
Another issue is this Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which may be approved in the U.S. at some point in the spring. And uh, it's promising in that it only takes one shot and doesn't require this elaborate cold storage chain, but it's not nearly as effective as the two current vaccines, the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine. I mean, I, I, I just worry it's going to exasperate all the same things that people are going to people are going to want to get the better vaccine and they're going to feel shafted if they are getting the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And it's going to be hard for public health officials to make decisions about wh whoever whoever's making decisions about who gets what vaccine. That's going to be a really hard decision. It's going to be a hard decision to make. One of the things about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is that it doesn't require the cold storage chain that the other vaccines do. And that's going to be really important because there are a lot of places in the world that don't, aren't set up for that kind of cold storage chain. I mean, there are places in Africa that just you can't get the modernity vaccine there because they're, you can't transport things at that cold temperature there. They're just, they don't have the infrastructure for it. So the Johnson Johnson vaccine, or in vaccines like that that don't require a cold storage vaccine, are going to be really important for vaccinating certain places. But it also is going to, I mean, you couldn't, <laughs> You couldn't, if you were, you know, writing a dystopian sci-fi novel about this pandemic, you couldn't write a better, like, plot twist than to have, like, a crappier vaccine, but the, but it was the only vaccine that worked in Africa, right? Right. People are going to be resentful of getting the less effective vaccine. Now, it's still a good vaccine. You know, like, it kind of compares to the flu vaccine, right? You get the flu vaccine, you hopefully you won't get the flu, but maybe sometimes it doesn't work, right? This is kind of on that that par. So it's not, like, out of the realm of, like, a useful medical thing. A lot of, you know, Fauci's very ex expressed a lot of optimism about the Johnson Johnson vaccine. But <laughs> you know, he's looking from a, a from a public health perspective. But for an individual... Right. He's not looking at it from an individual perspective. Right. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure as an individual, he would prefer to get Pfizer right. or, or Moderna, yeah. which he's gotten, you know. Right. But but from a public health perspective, you want to get anything, you know, reasonably effective out there to as many people as quickly as possible. But this brings me back to this issue of the, the global inequalities you were talking about, in particular Africa. I saw something the other day where they said, here's where different parts of the world's population are going to be getting the vaccine. And it was something like, well, Africa is not going to be, you know, the countries in Africa, the people in Africa are not going to get it until 2023. I mean, we just started 2021. So you're talking about another two years? It's crazy. Oh, and, my God. And meanwhile, the virus is going to continue to mutate in places where there are no vaccines. And those mutations are going to spread around the globe and require boosters or changes to the vaccines. And so, you know, people are now starting to talk about this being like like the flu, being like a yearly booster shot that people have to get, and this being like a yearly public health initiative, but obviously like more more dramatic than the flu. We're going to have to like figure out a way to roll out this vaccine every year to for the people in uh, the first world to make sure that they are up to date for all these variants that are bouncing around. Meanwhile, trying to like raise funds globally to like get distribution happening on a global scale. It's just it's just a mess. But that's all the time we have to talk about this for this episode. I'm sure we will be returning to this topic up next, our interview with David Norman Smith about Trump voters. Today we're going to be talking with sociologist David Norman Smith about Trump voters. What motivates them? How do they think? Do they all think alike? Is there differentiation within the group? So, David, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you very much for having me here. David Norman Smith is a sociologist um, at University of Kansas, which brings up the issue of what's the matter with Kansas. And he has done a lot to study and write about uh, class conflict and cultural conflict. And he's been doing that for many years. His research themes include prejudice, anti-Semitism, authoritarianism. Uh, he's also published widely on the issue of genocide, uh, especially about the genocide in, Wa in Rwanda in 1994. 
and in the past decade he his research has focused a lot on authoritarianism and anti-authoritarianism in the electorate several articles of his together with Eric Hanley have been published and lately he's also been moving into consideration of how we talk and think about authoritarianism uh, particularly progressives you know what what is it that they're getting not getting seeing not seeing and so forth you know i've done some research on uh, similar things consideration of the voters who flipped from obama to trump in 2016 the so-called obama trump voters and that brought me i i knew i knew of david's work uh, on other things for a while but that my research got me to focus a lot on the very interesting uh, stuff that he was doing about authoritarianism uh, and I've been studying his work very uh, carefully and so I'm really excited to have this uh, opportunity to explore these issues uh, with him and to share that all with uh, our listeners. So I think this is going to be a great discussion today. Let's just get right into the questions. So we we've, we've got these Trump voters. They support Trump. But when we say the Trump supporters support Trump, exactly what is it that they're supporting? A big question. So at first glance, it would be easy to say that Trump voters are simply supporting Trump and that Trumpism is a kind of cult of personality. I think there's a, a grain of truth to that in the sense that Donald Trump personally is a very unique figure. He has a unique set of personal qualities and he has spent a long time learning how to project those qualities. I don't think there's any doubt that those specific personal qualities are a big part of the appeal. But I think if we step back from the moment and from the person, what I would say is that Trump voters support what Donald Trump represents. And if Donald Trump were no longer in the picture, they would still support what he represents right now. His very well-known positions on Muslims, immigrants, minorities, feminists, liberals, all of those positions are positions that his supporters identify with. And my, my feeling is that if Trump himself were to change his tune, if he were to back away from those positions, he would lose a lot of support because um, his partisans want him to represent that worldview and those values. Uh, I really appreciate uh, your introduction, Andrew, and stating your own interest in the topic prompts me to think a bit about why I have been working in this area. And I will step back figuratively and say that on a certain level, my real interest is not so much Trump voters themselves, although I have worked on that uh, issue for a long time. What really concerns me, and I know concerns both of you, is the prospect for major social reform, uh, reforms that would benefit large numbers of people. If we look at the results of the 2020 election, we see that 74 million people voted for Donald Trump. But we also see that 81 million people voted for, uh, for Biden. And that vote is largely and clearly um, an anti-Trump vote. So there are really two camps of voters uh, as shown by the most recent election. And the anti-Trump camp is substantially larger. Uh, a 7 million vote margin is something like 3%. And that's very large at the level of a national election. The fact that the anti-Trump camp is larger and will probably grow larger still for reasons of age and demography, that opens the prospect for significant reform. And there are two ways of thinking about that. A lot of people on the liberal or progressive end of the spectrum are hopeful that they can build on that majority and expand it by reaching out to Trump voters. Others feel that the best option is to build and expand that majority elsewhere. And uh, that raises the question then of the extent to which reaching out to Trump voters can have positive and constructive outcomes. Even though course that would be desirable, even though, of course, it's possible on some issues at least. Um, I'm very skeptical, and that skepticism derives from, from the research I've done and the research by many others 
I hope that gives a, a good framing to the, to the discussion. Yeah, let's explore some of this research because it's, I, I think we're, we're seeing how important it is to have facts and truth and, 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 and these things guide our discussions. And maybe people who weren't so attentive to that have begun to understand the importance of that. But right before we do, I want to say you talked about how your view is that if Trump himself were to begin to deviate from this hard right, racist, authoritarian, misogynist stuff, that the, the supporters would you know, abandon him or, or, or push back or whatever. We've seen some of that. There, there's been occasions when he wasn't uh, lunatic enough, and they pushed back, and, and he got back in line. It's not just a, a possibility for the future. It, we, we've, we've seen some indications of that, I think. But you, you've got, as you were saying, those two narratives, one of which is saying that Trump's support was driven by so-called economic anxiety, uh, and the other was looking at the attitudes of, of Trump voters. And a lot of people focused, I think quite rightly, on attitudinal surveys which showed a lot of racism, misogyny, xenophobia in among Trump voters. But one thing that you focused on that a lot of people haven't uh, is the issue of authoritarianism. And in fact, in the American National Election Study, which is kind of the gold standard election survey, you contributed questions about authoritarianism in the uh, 2012 and the 2016 uh, election cycle uh, surveys. And my own research and yours, there's strong parallels, and they have to do with the fact that racial prejudice and other prejudice are linked to authoritarianism. Can you talk somewhat about that? Yeah, let me let me say a word first about the issue of economic anxiety. A lot of good research that I've seen shows that economic anxiety is pretty universal um, and that it doesn't distinguish Trump voters from other voters. We've been having tough economic times since 2008. In many key respects, uh, Trump voters have actually been insulated from some of the effects of, of, of global problems with the economy. There was excellent research done by the Gallup organization in 2016 that showed that by many criteria, Trump voters were actually less directly exposed to the uh, unfortunate economic consequences uh, that people had been experiencing. And research in general shows uh, that it's, it's not distinctive. So if you're trying to explain the Trump vote, the economic anxiety angle doesn't, doesn't explain very much. So I, I tend to avoid most of the labels that are used here, but the, the label, the word authoritarian is pertinent because it, it springs from a, a long-standing literature. And the American National Election Study has, for about 30 years, been asking questions at every national election that are intended to tap into people's attitudes towards authority. And for a long time, those questions were entirely about child-rearing. And in my opinion, those are pretty good questions, but they're a little bit ambiguous and they're not very, very detailed or elaborate. So um, with my colleague, uh, Eric Hanley, uh, back in 2011, I suggested to the National Election Study that they include other items about authority, and they agreed. And we have some very interesting results as a consequence. Um, what, what I would say the issue that's most directly relevant is how people feel about their leaders. And the attitude that our questions have raised to the surface is what I call the wish for a domineering leader who won't hesitate to confront or oppose uh, people that his followers see as opponents or as enemies. So a domineering leader who will take action on behalf of their, their worldview. A phrase that I find useful is the phrase culture war. I realize that's just two words and people differ in how they interpret it. But there are lots of values, lots of attitudes that are clashing right now. And what we found is that voters in 2016 who supported Trump uh, expressed a strong wish for a domineering leader who would take their side 
in the culture war. And since he was elected, he has been very careful to maintain that posture. Uh, as recently as the last month or two, he's been, he has been reported to uh, worry that some of the public statements he was asked to make might make him look weak. So I think you're right, Andrew, that he's well aware that his popularity is vulnerable. Um, he has to continue to represent what people want and represent it effectively. And they want strength. They want somebody who can dominate. And if, if he were to show true weakness, if he were to apologize remorsefully for some aspect of his, of his policies, that could hurt him in the eyes of a lot of people who are his followers. He could disappoint them. Yeah, we were just talking about this tension last week uh, in our current event section about his fallout with the Proud Boys after the Capitol riots and how his followers were disappointed that he left uh, from Mar-a-Lago and didn't pardon the insurrectionists. And for giving up when, a couple of days before the inauguration, he says, well, you're going to have a new president and so forth and uh, have a good life. They, they didn't like that. But, but David, um, I'm not sure that it that everybody is going to understand when you say express a wish for a domineering leader and strength and all of this. It, it sounds kind of abstract. And people might think that, well, what, what they what the people are answering might be amenable to different interpretations. What are like a, a couple of examples of the questions that they're asked and, and how they, you know, what the kinds of responses that uh, that, that people give that leads you to uh, this kind of conclusion that these people are authoritarian? Well, um, actually, again, the word authoritarian is a little bit complicated. Uh, the best research shows that people who want domineering leaders have actually more than one kind of motivation. So uh, I won't get too detailed about this, but it is relevant. I mean, progressives always say they want facts, and sometimes the facts are a little bit complicated. Uh, the best research shows, and our research particularly with respect to the 2012 election, shows that the population that wants a domineering leader who will push people around on behalf of his worldview uh, break down into two broad categories, and I can characterize the difference between them pretty simply and I think uh, accurately. Uh, one camp tends to see the world as divided between people who are fundamentally good and people who are who are bad. Um, so the, it's a moral division, the good people versus bad people. Another fairly sizable group sees the world somewhat differently. They divide the world between winners and losers. And actually, those two groups share the wish for a domineering leader who will represent them against groups they dislike. And the groups that appear in the national election study items include Muslims and immigrants. So the, the people who, who express the wish for a domineering leader share unfriendlier attitudes towards Muslims and immigrants, for example, than other voters. But they actually do differ quite a bit in their underlying motive. So this is a, a complication that I, I'm basically presenting just as food for thought. Progressives always say that they want facts. And there are complicated facts that have to be considered. However, the data also suggest that both groups are wedded to their worldview and that their different motives lead them both to strongly wish for um, a leader of the kind that Donald Trump represents. Uh, are you able to like give us some uh, example questions that people are responding to? Unfortunately, in 2016, we were only able to look into one of those two categories because the election study left some of our 2012 items off the scale. But the, the items that appeared in 2016 are very clear and strong items, and these are all framed as statements. So one statement is, roughly, that what the United States truly needs is a mighty leader who will crush evil and get America back to its roots. Now, you might think that that question was written recently and that people, the people who wrote it had Donald Trump in mind. But in fact, uh, that question dates back to the 20th century and the originator of that item in 1994 said that his early research suggested that there were probably tens of millions of people in North America who would strongly agree that what, what we need most is a mighty leader who will crush evil. 
Another closely related item says that what is needed is to get rid of the rotten apples who are ruining everything. Now, you might think that Clinton voters would say yes to one or the other of those um, items as well, but in fact, they don't strongly agree at all. They take a, a very, very different and opposed stance. So people who voted for Trump in 2016, at least those who responded to the national elections uh, study, were much, much likelier to say they strongly agreed that evil should be crushed and that rotten apples should be gotten rid of. I mean, to me, that that's like very concrete. These questions are almost like comic book caricatures, right? Um, and when, when I first saw that crush evil question, I thought it was like, nobody's going to answer this affirmatively. And then I look at the numbers and, uh, oh, my God, you know, this is actually what, what, what people want, a lot of them. And a lot of us don't. But, you know, so cause some questions you get very few people agreeing with them. But, but that's not the case with that question. OK, so in, in terms of authoritarianism, I understand the further distinctions you're making, but basically you're saying you were able to to establish that there's an author some authoritarian motivations in terms of wanting a domineering leader, people who kind of said, well, Trump voters are not authoritarian. In particular, that's because they don't express uh, disproportionate authoritarian preferences in terms of how you raise kids. Entirely different thing. I found, by the way, the same thing when I looked at these Obama uh, Trump voters, you know, strong preference among Trump voters for authoritarian leadership, but no real effect could be discerned from child rearing preferences. But my question is, given that the desire for domineering leader is related statistically to anti-black prejudice and to anti-Muslim, perhaps, or you know, anti-immigrant uh, sentiment. Okay, we see that the two things uh, move up and down together. The people who are more one way, or uh, with the races, the race issue, or more this way with the authoritarian issue, and less, less. So the the two things are correlated. But what is the actual relationship? between them? I mean, why is it the case? And and what are the links, the mental links, the attitudinal links that make the people who are racist authoritarian and make the people who are authoritarian racist? Well, this is a, a huge question. And I, I somewhat differ from you, Andrew, in, in, in the framing of the question, because I, I, I don't really like most of the labels that are applied. Okay. Because what we're talking about are, are attitudes on a spectrum. So there are degrees, you know, greater or lesser degrees of what we can call, um, you know, gender prejudice, prejudice against women or prejudice against immigrants. What research in this tradition has shown consistently since the middle of the 20th century is that people who express the kind of wish for a domineering leader that I'm describing want that leader to dominate an outgroup or a or, or a set of outgroups, and actually, the groups that fall into the outer category change over time. So, what was discovered as far back as 1950 is that the wish for a domineering leader who will reward the good people and exclude or punish the bad people um, seems to be the the moral axis around which this this worldview spins. So in a certain sense, even though it matters greatly in the moment and for you know, years and years, in a certain sense, the specific outgroups aren't really the point. The worldview is divided between good and evil, and the good people are supposed to be rewarded, and the bad people are not supposed to be rewarded. And so here's, here's an important example. As recently as 2015, just six years ago, a, a very good book was published about anti-immigrant sentiment. And the authors of that book almost apologized for writing a whole book on the subject because they said it hadn't really become a very big phenomenon yet, um, but that it was, it was an important phenomenon and they wanted to look at it. Our research shows that the issue of immigration 
has soared to the front of the discussion in the last decade. We did some analysis of what differed in the attitudes of voters in 2012 and 2016 with respect to all the kinds of attitudes that you've been describing. And we found that only two attitudes changed significantly from 2012 to 2016. And one was a sharp rise in immigration as a dividing line. Uh, so in 2012, immigration uh, was a much less bright line dividing Romney from Obama voters. In 2016, it had soared to the front and was a big dividing line, a big fault line between Trump and Clinton voters. The other change, which was not as dramatic, was a, a change with respect to the wish for a domineering leader. That did increase uh, modestly from 2012 to 2016. I think that what's important is to look sort of like beneath the surface and beneath the labels. I don't think very many people in, in the Trump camp would deny that they see the world in stark moral terms, moral terms as they define them. Part of my goal in all of this is to sort of look beyond the, the conventional labels and try to figure out sort of what's the dynamic here. And the dynamic seems to be a persisting wish for a leader who will act strongly in a world which is divided between friends and enemies. And that, that contrasts very sharply with the attitude of a lot of liberals and progressives who want to see all of humanity as, uh, as one big family. How does religion correlate with these sorts of worldviews? Oh, that, that's a, actually with respect to a lot of the questions that are, are most important right, right now, I have to say that all the answers are tentative because a lot of the best research is still to be done. But I mean, it's, it's, it will be no surprise to anyone to discover that taking a fundamentalist position with respect to the inerrancy of the Bible has a statistical correlation, at least, with some of what we're describing. On the other hand, there are quite a few Trump voters who are far from being evangelical Christians. There are quite a few Trump voters who basically say they have no particular religious affiliation. So again, if we look sort of beyond the big words like religion, I, I think that what, what unites Trump voters is the sense that there's an us and a them. And actually, let me make a point that, uh, that has seldom been noticed. Uh, there was some very good research about the, the broader trends among Trump voters in 2016. And my reading of that data suggests a, another complication that has not been widely noticed. And that complication is that there seem to be two quite different camps among Trump voters, it, it, even though they will all, by and large, uh, statistically express strong support for crushing evil and getting rid of rotten apples. The two broad camps are those who would be described as populists in the sense that they harbor negative feelings towards um, elites. They would not necessarily oppose taxing the rich. There are some social welfare, welfare programs that they, that they strongly favor. Um, so they have some distinctly populist attitudes. And they're, with respect to the data that was examined, that's close to 50% of Trump's base. But the other slightly more than half is actually anti-populist. And this is a, a curiosity, something that hasn't been um, much discussed. By anti-populist, I mean that these are voters who are actually are quite a bit more affluent than the first category. The more populist voters have significantly lower incomes than the anti-populist voters. The anti-populist voters are much more likely to be men, older men. They are uh, more likely to have identified with the Tea Party. They oppose government regulation in the traditional Republican way. They would, would very strongly oppose increased taxes on the rich. They're not sympathetic to social welfare. And they identify strongly as Republicans, and they use the word conservative to describe themselves. That's, that's the anti-populist category. The populist category is less affluent and is also less likely to call itself conservative. That word doesn't really resonate for them in the same way. 
they're less likely to identify with the Republican Party per se. So sometimes when, when people are talking about Trump's base, I think they have that populist wing in mind. Those are voters who probably would be more likely to, to express direct loyalty to Trump than to the Republican Party. But what's striking from the data is that when it came time to vote, they all voted for Trump, and they expressed very similar views on, with respect to authority, with respect to the us, and with respect to the them. So their views on policy, their views on social issues, um, other than populism versus anti-populism, harmonize. So when I said earlier that the phrase culture war makes a certain amount of sense to me, I'm referring partly to this, because two groups of people who disagree about taxes and social welfare nonetheless have been very strongly united, not only in the election in 2016, but for the four years of Trump's presidency. And so that's another complexity, another level that I think needs to be uh, carefully considered. I mean, I have, I have some problems saying that the economic conservatives are, are anti-populist by virtue of being economic conservatives. I mean, it's not that they are in favor of respecting liberal democracy as against uh, demagogy. They're united behind Trump and, 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 and Trumpism in that sense. So I, is, it, is it just that you're saying that in the, 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 the Trumpite base, you've got both economic conservatives and people who are not economic conservatives? Or is there something specifically anti-populist about the economic conservatives? Well, I'll, I'll back away from the words that we're using here again, because most of the words that, that are used, even the word authoritarian, tends to turn into a stereotype before long. And so what, I, what I'll say without worrying about whether the words populist or anti-populist really apply, what, what strikes me is that for the last four years, when people have been watching poll numbers and, and you know midterm election results and so on, what has struck people again and again and again is the solid unity of the Trump voting base. And so there has been a tendency to think of Trump voters as a monolith, one solid block with, which represents one thing only. And what, what strikes me about the, the findings that I'm reporting is that it tells us that on some levels, Trump's base is anything but a monolith on some very important issues. Social welfare is a very important issue. On some of those issues, there are actually sharp divisions among Trump voters. And yet, what they have in common up until this point has proved to be more powerful than what divides them. And so um, in order to think constructively about um, the many people who still and have long supported Trump, it helps to pay attention to that level of, uh, of detail. Uh, not all Trump voters are alike. It's really important, I think, to understand that. And that's one of the reasons I also shy away from labels, because the labels do tend to categorize the Trump voter as a, as, as a single uh, kind of person. And in reality, there are people who divide the world between good and evil. There are people who divide the world between winners and losers. There are those who favor social welfare policies of, of, of some types, and there are those who strongly oppose those same policies. What I find really, really important is that despite all that complexity, there has still been a very high level of unity in action. And my reading of the data suggests that that unity in action revolves around this wish for a, a domineering leader who will defend what they regard as us against what they regard as them. In just a moment, we will get back to this interview with David Norman Smith. But first, we're going to hear a few words from Anne Jaclard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. 
Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing in all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world we intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. Yes, this is, this is extremely interesting because it goes to the issue of the characterization or caricature of Trump's base as being the so-called, I hate to even use the term, white working class. I mean, one thing that we, we know about people who are lower income uh, is that they are not economic conservatives in that traditional sense. So I, I, I take it that the ones in Trump's base who are not the, the, the economic conservatives are more likely to be uh, so-called working white working class, and the the economic conservatives are likely to be more of the higher income people. So, what would you say? And I know you've got a whole paper with Eric Hanley uh, about this issue of Trump's base in relationship to this concept of white working class. Can you explain your thinking about that? Yeah, I, I think that the phrase white working class uh, quickly turned into an unhelpful stereotype. And that it's it's a big blocky phrase um, that has all kinds of uh, resonance for for different people. Um, what it actually means, and this is a phrase that's standard in much of political science. It's a, it's also standard in much conventional journalism. And what it very expressly means in almost all cases is simply the division between people who have college degrees and those who don't. That's a a very limited. A way of looking at the American people. Uh, education is important, but there are so many other things that matter too. And the, the degree to which this is uh, stereotype is shown in a, a number of ways. Uh, one of the very best books on this subject, uh, a really outstanding work of interviews with people who have all different kinds of attitudes in several states, something like 250 intensive interviews, which is a lot. That book categorized the owner of a cement factory as a member of the white working class because he held views like Donald Trump. In other words, his views 
were regarded as uh, his as his class uh, identity. Uh, so I'm sure you know the work of Kim Moody. Kim Moody wrote an article some years back showing that 17 million white voters without college degrees are businesses. Uh, Selena Zito, who did a lot to pump up this idea of, of Trump as a man of the people. I mean, she had a position that she was characterizing as, as working class. Right. A physician, a doctor. Right, and if I recall that she had a, a really interesting appendix with her, her survey instrument and her tables and so on in that book. Yeah, it's, again, these big categories, uh, like religion, even, I mean, like authoritarianism, all of the, the big words that end in ism, for example, tend to just sort of sit there in an inert way, and they tend to sort of block more, more nuanced insight. So... Let's put it this way. Um, you, you referred to the paper that Eric and I wrote. What, what we did is we looked at the regional distribution of votes and attitudes. I mean, this is a big country. And so generalizations about all people with or without college degrees can only take us so far. So Eric and I looked at the national election study data, and we found striking differences. We found that in the South and in the Midwest— Trump had significantly more support among white voters without college degrees than Mitt Romney did in 2012. But we also found that he had more support among white voters with college degrees than uh, Mitt Romney in 2012. We found at the same time that white voters without college degrees in the Northeast were, were appreciably less likely to vote for Trump than they had been for Romney. So, so white voters without college degrees were going in different directions uh, in different parts of the country. And we found that in the West, nothing much had changed in this respect. So the, the stereotype doesn't help us understand um, real people in different parts of the country. And there are tens of millions of white voters without college degrees who have consistently voted against Trump as well as for Trump. So even though there are, it's, I, don't, I don't mean uh, to dismiss the issue, what we find is that if you look at white voters without college degrees, they divide in their vote preferences based on their attitudes for the most part. So they describe the same in, in, in these terms. These are white voters. They are without college degrees. But in different parts of the country, um, they uh, behave uh, and think differently. And there are millions and millions on both sides of the culture war. So how helpful is that category for constructive thinking about this issue? I find it unhelpful in many respects. And I've actually done a little bit of searching trying to find literature on the non-white working class because most of the non-white people in the United States um, belong to the working class. I mean, they either actively hold jobs or, they, or they're retired from their jobs. Uh, they, they work for wages. There's been a fixation on the phrase white working class, which doesn't feel right to me. I mean, the people with college degrees work for wages too, by and large. Uh, so if we're talking about people who work for a living, people who actually work hard, we're talking about people with and without college degrees, people who are white and not white. Actually, I think it would be helpful here because I remember being surprised when I started to talk about people with degrees and without degrees. And I, I was struck by what people thought I was saying. And I, I was like, no, 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 that's not the point. So when, when we say Trump uh, had strongly disproportionate support among people without college degrees. People get the sense that the hypothesis is they voted for Trump because they're stupid. In other words, people without degrees, they're, they're stupid, therefore they voted for Trump. Okay, I assume that, that you don't have that in mind, and I don't think anybody who does research in the area has that in mind. Beyond just recording of the statistical fact, though, what would you say does kind of explain the link between the, the lack of uh, a college degree and the support for Trump? Well, I, I don't mean to dodge that question, but I, I do think that partly for the reasons I've been presenting, 
that question hasn't been properly asked. Too many people have been too easily satisfied with the phrase white working class. So the kind of deeper digging that would be required, just talking to people, getting to know them better, uh, hasn't been done as well as it could. The, the book I mentioned early, earlier that classified the cement factory owner as a, as a worker is actually one of the better contributions. But let me just address the whole issue of how progressives think about this issue of education, because liberals and progressives very often do hold the view that you're describing. They think that, um, that people who are ill-educated just don't know enough to have form reasonable opinions. And I think this is stereotypical thinking on the part of liberals and progressives. And I think there's a, a really fundamental issue here that, uh, that I'd like to frame in a, in a slightly different way than usual. A lot of people have been wringing their hands among progressives and liberals. A lot of people have been upset that there seems to be a lack of respect for so-called facts and science. And there's a lot of concern about how to get a better recognition of, of, of you know, scientific fact. I, I sympathize with the concern completely, but I think some of the conversation is limited because what I perceive, what I think uh, a lot of the data shows, is that people on both sides of the culture war in their own very different ways regard truth as important, but they have a different approach to truth. Uh, most liberals and progressives, people that I have met over the years and people I see on TV, seem to think that it's an open and shut case. Either you have the evidence that proves your point or you don't. So you're looking for facts. You start out with an open mind. Once you gather enough evidence, you come to a determination. So that's a kind of empirical attitude. What I perceive on the other side of the culture war is an existential sense of truth. Um, there's a feeling that we know what's true. We know it in our bones. And there's a deep mistrust of scientists and experts who try to tell them what they believe is true is wrong. Andrew, in an email, you raised the issue of social trust, and I think that's really, really key. When people say that there's a, a lack of regard for facts or for science, what I would say is that there's a deep mistrust of the institutions of science a deep mistrust of accredited experts and scientists who are often perceived as cherry-picking the facts to make politically correct points. So uh, what a lot of liberals and progressives think are just simply the facts can be viewed in a very different light as an attempt to slant the facts to make what appears to be a politically correct perspective that they feel in their bones is wrong. So. Whereas liberals think that there's a, a lack of concern for facts, among Trump voters, there is actually a very strong concern for what they regard as truth. But they think that truth is deeper than the sort of momentary foam of facts. Here's a, here's a really simple example. Over the years, when I read the newspaper, I have often read articles about whether coffee is good for you or bad for you. So one year, I'll read a new report saying that, oh, it turns out that Drinking coffee is, is good for you, so in moderation, and they give some details. Then a few years later, an article appears saying, oh, it turns out that wasn't right. And then a few years later, it's, it's good for you again. I think a lot of people feel that that kind of fact comes and goes and doesn't dig beneath the surface and tell us what's true in a, in a, in a, in a powerful way. So the kinds of issues that we're talking about, issues of who deserves what, who's good, who's not good, those go below. The, the sort of surface of what, what numbers show today. I think, so I think a lot of people just don't understand the, the depth of the distance here. It's not just a, a disregard for facts or not being educated enough to appreciate facts. It's deeper. It's a sense that they already know fundamental moral truths. They don't trust people who tell them that what they believe is contradicted by this number or that number. Does, does that sound reasonable yes uh, and no I, I mean i think i think that you're you're right that it's not simply a lack of knowledge that's driving this and it's not simply even unwillingness to look at facts what i don't find helpful is the idea that 
they have a respect for truth as they define it. I mean, everybody has a respect for truth as, as, as they define it. But I mean, there there is something different that came into the world with rationalism, with empiricism, with the scientific method, so-called, whereby you, you have methods of, of ascertaining what is and what isn't that are better than instinct and intuition. And I mean, I think that this is a real dividing line, right? When, right. when people are, are determined to stick to their intuitions and gut feelings, I, I think it is, even though they would say, you know, this is the truth because I know it because I feel it, I think that, that, that it's perfectly legitimate to say these are people who, who lack respect for facts. We are bumping up against the time limit here, so we're going to hear the rest of this interview in our next episode of Radio Free Humanity and leave you here on this cliffhanger as uh, Andrew and David try to work through this issue. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read about the issues discussed, or to uh, join in the conversation, please do visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. If you like the podcast, you can rate the podcast, you can subscribe, you can share it with your friends and enemies, and please do write to us. We would love to hear from you.